I got a Watson fellowship when I graduated from Oberlin that required me to spend a year outside of America doing my project, which was focused on Alfred Schnittke. So I came over to London and I was in where his archive is. And then I was in Hamburg where his publisher is, Vienna, where he sort of grew up for uh, about a year or two. So I was, I was kind of traveling around Europe during that time. And when that project came to an end, I wasn't sure what direction I wanted to go in and had in that year discovered Berlin and it's, uh, it just felt like a great city to move to and figure stuff out. What did you have in front of you? What were your options? Um, being a professional pianist or being a professional composer. Okay. So you were, double... you, were, you were saying while I was setting up that you had a messy divorce from piano. So, but you yeah. were really, your piano was actually at a level where you had a choice to actually be, be able to like tour or just do performances. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I was kind of specializing towards the end. I was specializing in contemporary music more and more and that was yeah that was really the thing that was kind of driving me probably from about the age of 19 or so i mean i did the i did the traditional stuff you know i did my beethoven sonatas my my list mephisto waltz and all the you know the traditional virtuosity stuff at um, oberlin which is a good school yeah yeah, yeah. yeah okay. at oberlin yeah. and I, it's funny now like bumping into people who know me from then because i was my profile was probably higher as a pianist at oberlin than it was as a composer. And so now that, you know, for people I haven't seen in God, 10 years, my 10 year reunion to Oberlin is coming up in May. Well, Are you going to go? I'm totally going. Yeah. 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 Cause I'm going to be in Ohio. So I'm so excited about it actually. Okay. And I, I've missed all of my reunions because of just living abroad. But, uh, so this will be my first one, but yeah, so they know me more as a pianist and the, the messy divorce thing was really after about two years, two or three years of being here and trying to do both really well and just finding that that that's equation didn't really work out um, because I had to spend time earning money. And like, uh, you know, I gave a couple of piano recitals and when I was preparing for those, I felt really dissatisfied with my compositional work. And when I was happy with my compositional work, I was really dissatisfied with my practice routines. And so I could, I, or if I was happy with both, I was totally broke. Like I could just not <laughs> find the balance. Right. So something had to go and I had a real, I was going to say a come to Jesus moment, but that's the wrong trope. It was a, a real, you know, what the hell do I really want to be doing with my life? Do I want to be interpreting music on stage as a pianist or do I want to be creating music sort of on my own? And I chose the latter. Before you made that decision, you were already in Berlin. What made you? What made you decide this city? I fell in love with a boy at a hostel. And no really yeah. that's it it's always i'm telling you i'm like why berlin and i think maybe a good 40 percent of do the people do it for sex and also and also like random i can't believe i ended up in this situation type sex right type thing like a boy at a hospital at a, a boy you know, at a hostel this yeah. isn't like some relationship that had been cultivating for decades or something like that you know it's like oh i met a boy at a met a boy at a hostel oh, that's and, hilarious uh he was crazy and i was crazy for him and we were crazy for each other for a while and it was you know it was fun um and then it stopped and uh then i was in berlin and i was really happy about it like i, I of course wouldn't admit to myself at the time that that's why i was was coming but it was you know that was a good 85 percent of the motivation oh god the lies we tell ourselves <laughs> for everything oh i'm not doing this for 
Of course, this is a great opportunity for me. It's yeah. so freeing to admit that, though. Like to, to look back at a decision that you made and be like, "Oh yeah, I was, I was lying to myself." Oh right yeah, there. yeah, like, yeah, it's yeah. it's yeah, it's a big moment to realize that. Are you lying? What about what about you right now? Are you lying? Do you think you're lying to yourself about though? Because yeah. I always think about that because right. I look back in retrospect and I'm like, I can't believe I was telling myself that in order just for me to have an excuse to do this thing that I knew was dumb and reckless. And right. now I'm like, I'm sure I'm doing one of those two things right now but i don't have the retrospect to yeah that's a good question what am i lying to myself about right now i mean i i would have to say i am lying to myself about something sure but but, but nothing comes to mind though yeah and so uh, well I'll, I'll come back in 10 yeah, years yeah, yeah. And be like, <laughs> hit me up yeah yeah i can't believe i thought i wanted to be a composer i was a pianist all along <laughs> right Okay, so that's, that's how you ended up in Berlin, and then you just decided to stay. I decided to stay, and then, the, I mean, the, the the clincher, I think, was probably meeting Rebecca Saunders and really getting into the nuts and bolts of what writing music could mean for me. And You started studying with her? Yeah, first. privately okay. um, in, in Berlin in 2005, actually, so pretty pretty early on. Um, I, I think I moved here with an eye towards being here, like permanently based here in 2004, April, May, somewhere in there. But this wasn't your first composition teacher, right? Didn't At you... all. No, no, no. Yeah. At, uh, I was at Oberlin with Lewis Nielsen, Randy Coleman, and then Rebecca. Uh, okay. So, and then right to, right to Rebecca. Right to Rebecca. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. W- what did she give you that make you, uh, that made you understand whatever you understand now that makes you do the thing you do? Right. Um, two major things about her, I think. Um, the first is, was that she was brutal. And I respond really well to that. I think that's a sign of respect. It's either that or just like sheer um, malice. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> right? know. Yeah, it's one of those. Uh, yeah, yeah. So she was brutal and kind of showed me in that first meeting that I had with her. You know, she's like, yeah, this is fine. But this, you know, this is like good student work. And here is actually where the bar is just in a totally different league from where you have been probably, I'm guessing, thinking it has been. Like, if you really want to go for this, then the work that you need to do is sort of what you've done to like the third power, basically. Okay, so can you give me a more concrete example of like a piece of music that you brought in and what what sucked about it? And then what yeah. did she say? Uh, I had this violin and piano piece. That's what I was working on when I when I came to her. And it was composed quickly and sort of took the, the first, you know, option um in terms of you know follow your intuition and just sort of like transcribe that and there you go and you can sort of go back and work in a bit of detail like i was i was actually pretty happy with the piano part it had this weird like repetitive chord cycle thing where notes were kind of being like dropped naturally and then the piano had to leave them out it was i was actually starting to do this thing that interests me a lot now which is incorporating like natural bodily phenomena into the the materials that i'm using so again, in this example, it was piano sort of plays these chords and then like um, they're very, very quiet chords. And so when by accident, say a note is dropped, you then just leave it out in subsequent repetitions. Does that make sense? Okay. So within the piece itself, it, it acknowledges that this is impossible. But when you do screw up, that's also part of the piece and take that into account. Right. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So sorry, that's a tangent though. That was, that was the one saving grace of this horrible thing that I brought to Rebecca, right? Um, and she basically looked at it and said, okay, you need to write this out, like the, take these four bars and write them out in 10 different ways and 
come back to me and we'll talk about those 10 different ways and what's, what's good about them and what's bad about them. And so really just forcing me to sit down and listen through a moment and really weigh every little part of that moment. And I did that and it completely changed. And what I actually was after in that passage became totally clear through this process of like trying out 10 different versions of it. And then and you kind of see immediately the heart of what actually interests you. And I, I think that's something that's so difficult to do about writing music is figuring out what the, what we're after. Like, what is the point? Why does this piece exist? And what are you trying to quote unquote say in the piece? And, you know, one possible approach to that is, well, try to say it 10, 12, 15 different ways. And your intention, you'll sort of like start building these little clouds around your intention that makes it clearer and clearer what it is you're you're actually after. It becomes more pixelated, I guess, the vision of what it's supposed to be. Right. So what are you after now? Yeah. Um, so there's this body thing that is pretty crucial for me. I've been, I just wrote an article about this, so I don't, I don't want to, you know, uh, load this up with too much sort of theory vocab, but I'm interested in having performers do things on stage with their bodies that forges a collectivity with the other bodies in the space rather than, you know, deploys some sort of like divisive means of, of judging. So example of this, like it's really tied up with virtuosity, right? Like um, I think there are lots of different ways of, of understanding virtuosity and, and engaging it. But the most common I think is to ask someone to do things that are really specialized and really difficult. And then we watch them do that on stage and we admire their ability to do that and part of that admiration is rooted in our non-ability to do that. But it's also, it's mostly being impressed with the performer, not the composer at that moment, I think. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. So that's what you're... That, and, I mean, I think what we have to realize about that moment is um, that it does set up, if not a hierarchy, at least like a stark division between, you know, specifically the the abilities of the bodies in space. And like that body on that stage can do this thing that I can't even imagine doing it with my body. And there's sort of like a deification that that happens. I mean, part of the fascination is imbricated with this sense of like, that is unattainable for me and I will admire that superiority. I can appreciate that um, superficially and sort of almost like pornographically as someone who's, you know, composing scores that are meant to be done live. Like I'm so not interested in in endorsing that kind of power structure. The culture promotes that type of hierarchy, as you said. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so... What are you doing to still work in that realm? Right. And at the same time, try and go beyond what the fluff. Right, you know? right, right. I mean, I think uh, if I can reference the, the dance work of a, a friend of mine, um, Isabel Lewis is her name, and I saw her do this thing on stage that kind of blew me away. It's not terribly new. I'm also not super in, interested in this, in an idea of the new that has to do with, you know, newness always being a good thing or, or like, in, I don't know endorsing novelty as like the goal always but that's a tangent so her her thing that she did on stage was she just sort of ran in place and got crazy exhausted and that was like a segment of a dance piece that she she was doing and like literally everybody in the room could react to that and could identify with that feeling so what's special about doing that on a stage well i mean there is just the she's doing it factor of like I am now watching this person do this thing with their body that I could actually do. I just don't happen to be doing it right now. And that's a really different form of engagement for me. Like that's, um, that's something that I would say sort of 
is actively supporting a collectivity between the people present and is expressing on that basis of sameness rather than expressing on a basis of difference. I like that way of uh, thinking about it, but then I think a lot of the times, depending on the audience member, then they're like, so what? There's no border now. We go to the concert experience because we enjoy that border of you've worked hard enough to do something that I can't do. And in the case of your friend who's just running in place, yes, everybody knows what that feels like. But I think certain people are shut off by the fact that there's no border. Quote, you're a professional. You know, you should have been studying this like the violin and I should see you do things that are so impressive to me because they're really far from my skill set. Okay, so two things on that. One, that's that's basically the musical analog of um, the response to some visual art of, oh, I could have done that. that exactly. Right? That's where I'm getting at. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This is a pretty old thing that we've actually become very comfortable with in other media, sort of culturally, a uh, long time ago. I mean, we're, we're almost looking at 100 years, actually. I think music generally is fairly conservative. I think it kind of comes pretty late to things that are just totally accepted in other media. Um, okay, so there's that. There's this one thing of like watching a body fail to perform common feats that I think can be interesting. I'd say I have two other Baustellen, uh, like two main foci in my in my work. They kind of they kind of both come from things that I love as an observer. I love really great installation art. It feeds me and I've had like transformative experiences in the mattress factory in Pittsburgh. I don't know if you've seen this place. Um, it's a museum that's just dedicated to, to installation art. And what I love about entering a space like that is, is you know immediately that there's this interesting interplay between the personal journey that you're on, that you're just sort of invited to explore this piece, whatever it is, on your own terms. And that, that feeling coexists with this knowledge that the space you are entering has been meticulously constructed and thought through by someone. So there's, there's all of this intention sort of all over the place, or at least care. And you have such great personal agency inside of that space to be coming at it on, on your own terms. And so that's a feeling that I, um, that I really cherish as a, as a listener and one that I feel so seldom in contemporary music. That's a major direction that I want to be investing what, in my work in. Are you working to give people that experience within a concert piece? Or are you working more towards the side of an installation? Definitely more towards an installation. I mean, I think we, we could talk a while about the, the limitations of the concert hall. Um, this is also a, a thing that people have a pretty strong knee-jerk reaction to in terms of like, oh, yes, of course, the concert hall is an evil place and we need to be, you know, we need to destroy it. And like, haven't we had this argument like 60 years ago and haven't we solved this really? I don't think so at all. I think it's totally relevant. I referenced earlier sort of the limited bandwidth within which an interpreter can act. And I feel the same as a composer writing stuff for a concert hall. I mean, we right like if you're writing a, a, a solo cello piece, yeah, you're going to consider what sort of material you're going to use in the form and like um, the and any sort of like parameter that has to do with what you're writing on that paper is totally open and free to be defined by you. Except, I'm assuming it's a concert piece, how the audience is meant to listen to it, whether or not everyone in the audience will hear the same stuff, um, which they will. If we're talking about all of the parameters of a musical performance, yeah. Um, if you're writing a concert piece, so many decisions have been made for you already. Does that make sense? That does make sense. Yeah, yeah. And that is to me such a clear contradiction of how we understand the the process of composing music right now and what we think is important there. Like we have this just in our, in the relationship to to material, there is this 
broad acceptance of any sort of approach, you know, any, anything that makes a noise can be musical material, basically, right? In contemporary music, that's a pretty liberal perspective to have on what is acceptable material, right? Now, if we look at what is an acceptable listening environment, there is basically broad acceptance. Yeah, people are like, oh, sure, you can do anything. You can do a piece in a big field. You can do, you know, you can do a piece in a supermarket. You can do a piece in Bagheim or whatever, or you could do a piece in a concert hall. Yeah, kind of. I mean, there is a hegemony of the concert hall right now. That is just how like things are set up. That's how institutions are set up. Like that is the default. Everything else is sort of exotified and like it's it's there, but it's there's no way that it's seen at, at kind of the same level. Well, because it doesn't have the it doesn't doesn't have time on its side, you know, the, these, like history. Yeah, history. Yeah, yeah. Right. Like you know, the, I think that's uh, that's basically right. I mean, there's the only sort of counter example I would mention, um, or, or the only thing I would add to that is that the way we listen in concert halls has not been constant over centuries. Like um, opera is a pretty good example of this um, where the most of the opera would have been ignored by the audience. It was, there was a lot of talking. Oh yeah. It hasn't been, it's been, it's more respectful than it was. And it's also the assumption that people make is that it, during the Mozart opera, there wasn't some guy eating in the audience and like belching loudly. Like that's how syphilis probably got spread back in the day, like at the concert hall or something. It, it's, it is my goal to spread syphilis differently in my composition. Now that's works. a good yeah. piece. If you, if I, if I, if I walk, I was like, I was really affected by that piece. That was, I will never forget that. I need some penicillin. That's how good that piece was. <laughs> amazing yeah um yeah but i mean that's that, that's a good fallacy to point out is that like well the concert hall has been a lo- around for a long time and obviously people have been listening in this super you know not clapping between movements being very quiet and respectful the whole way like no that is that i think that's a broadly held misunderstanding so you seem pretty dissatisfied with that medium so are you yeah. just doing installations now I mean, well, first of all, I completely understand your dissatisfaction with it because it can be, it, it, it is a frustrating thing to experience and you're giving people such a bookended, ex, you know, experience. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know. I've, I've been sort of changing the way that I'm talking about it recently because it's, I mean, I think you can mount a pretty damning argument on the basis of actually of Marxist theory or of contemporary queer theory as to why like writing concert music endorses existent power structures in a way that is that is really problematic but i don't even need that like i'm i'm just not terribly excited by concerts like just in a super empirical like my ass in a seat kind of way like they're fine but i don't have my most moving experiences as a as a as an observer in concert halls anymore i mean it's really not that's that's not where it's at for me i don't know if you can identify with that i can identify with that in a certain way, but there's something about the type of ownership, but this go this plays into also ego, I guess my ego. There's something about the type of ownership you get with creating something for a medium that's kind of going to, that you feel like is going to last for a long time. So if I did something where I did an installation, I'd be like, oh, I worked so hard on this installation. And then after it's done, it gets packed up and the logistics of putting it together and everything like that, or in such a way that it probably won't happen again. Right. It's pretty, very rare that it happened again. Actually, the only person who I really kind of know in recent history who's been able to kind of like perpetuate an installation is actually Rebecca Saunders and like the pieces that, that she puts together. Right. So I think that type of finality of it, like once it's done, even though it might affect more people in a certain way, the idea that somebody just couldn't pick up a document that I made and put it together again without me 
that bothers me. It needs to be able to survive after. Now, I think there's a lot of bullshit in what I just said as far as like, I'm just saying that's what my ego was attracted to. Now, whether or not that aligns with the actual truth of like, you know, 150 years from now, people are going to pick up whatever ridiculous, you know, cello and piano piece I wrote. No, I don't. I in, on a pragmatic level, I I don't believe that. But right. the actual like thought that I have in my brain as I'm writing down the notes, like that helps motivate me somehow. Sure. Yeah. So just, you're just doing installations. You're just doing installations. No, now. I'm not. Um, I'm doing concert music now as well. And this is this has been a question for me. Like, why keep doing concert music? And part of it is because of what I mentioned. That's you know how the institutions work. That's that's what you get offered. No one's really offering me to do installation work right so then it would be a matter of me saying you know no thank you to any offer for concert music that comes my way or trying to adapt it into installations i don't know i'm not ready if they're to... like if they're like we want a piece for our ensemble and you're like great i have a great idea for an installation then I... they're like actually this has to be on a concert with reem i've so i've had that yeah um, actually ha- that's psychotic <laughs> that you just said that because that is exactly what happened with uh ensemble anti-contemporain is they asked me for a new piece and I said I would love to do a site-specific installation. And they were like, okay, well, we'll think about it. And uh, it was for a concert with a piece by Wolfgang Riem. <laughs> and I ended up, uh, they, they ended up saying, no, you know, we, what we can do is a concert piece with a conductor, uh, with all the musicians on the stage. And are you interested? And, I, you know, it's, so it's take it or leave it at that point. And it's Ensemble Anti-Contemporain. So you, you say yes. Maybe you're hanging um, out with the wrong crowd. Maybe you have the wrong friends. It's possible. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah. Right now, you know, maybe right now there's this sound installation, whatever institution that nobody knows exists or not so many people and they're dying to meet someone like you. I know. I know. And I, this is funny. That's um, a square. I mean, that's a square peg round hole situation. And even sure. even if you're in a situation where I mean, I'm going to be full of shit right now, because if they went up to me, I'd say yes immediately. Right. But if you're in a situation where it's not really what it's not where you want to go, then maybe it's maybe you should have another messy divorce. I know, I know. This is this is true. This is a good thing. This is maybe where the lie that I'm telling myself resides. Ah, I right think now. we found it. I think there we did go. find it. Yeah, yeah. That, um, uh, you shouldn't take great commissions anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I really fucked up my life taking all those great commissions, all those great opportunities. Of what was I thinking? I mean, I, you know. On the other hand, like a piece I'm working on right now is a concert piece, and it's for the Mivo String Quartet, and I really like them. I like their sound. I think they're. I think they're great and it's going to be a a concert piece for a concert hall. Right. And I have ways that I'm working through that ways that I'm making myself satisfied by writing concert music, like as an example, but at the end of the day, it's still going to have all those problems with it that caused you to go towards more installation work. Isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, you're, you're, you're still throwing it out there with a certain social situation that has these hierarchies and everything that you were complaining about before. And that's not going to go away. Right. Okay. Yes. Yes and no. Okay. So I think you can kind of write anti-concert hall music for concert halls and point out what concert halls do badly as a, kind of as a means of both protest and artistic expression. And uh, Marianthi, um, Papa Alexandri Alexandri, wrote a piece that did this in Darmstadt four years ago, six years ago, I don't know, a while ago, called Yarn. And I don't know if this was intentional or not, but it was in, a, it was in the Orangerie, this huge boxy hall with a terrible acoustic. It was a really quiet piece, such that no one beyond row seven really heard it at all. And... 
I was in, you know, maybe I was in the back section, like 45 rows away. Right. And I loved it because you got so little of it. And the reason you got so little of it is because it was an intimate piece in the wrong place. And that was just like, Okay, so you loved it because it proved your theory right that concert halls <laughs> suck, right? But you didn't love the piece. No, you, I you, did. You, you just loved that it failed for the reasons that you thought it was going to fail for. Y- yes. Okay, so failure. Failure, I think, is it's where it's at <laughs> right yeah, now. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, think, I think staging failure can be so, so powerful. But she um, wasn't staging failure. I mean, in a way, well, that's sort of asking her intention. I mean, what did the piece do? It did stage a failure. Yeah. Um, And I think it was an expressive and beautiful one because you knew that there was this fragile thing. You knew that there was all of this detail of which you could only hear like a tiny portion. Right. So that was poignant, like knowing that there's this thing that's like just too distant, but you're convinced that it has this richness that will forever remain unattainable. Like that's kind of a cool sensation for me i also it's hard for me to divorce it from my experience of sitting in on rehearsals so i I heard the piece up close and then i heard it with all the details so you knew what was being missed out on right yeah right so maybe it would be different otherwise um it got really really strong reactions in both directions was i loved it because i couldn't hear it and i hated it because i couldn't hear it i mean yeah just you know booze and and yells of joy all right. Yeah. So what do you, so what direction are you going in that, that makes you aesthetically okay? I mean, with, uh, having people sit down, sit down in a place and, yeah. and uh, experience a bookended time constrained experience alongside other pieces by other authors. Right. Okay. So I think there's, there's two things that I can do that are interesting still in concert halls. Um, one thing I was doing for a while was just, um, just trying to write interesting sounds that were fun to, play or fun or rewarding to play and just kind of like honing craft a bit with like with the pros right and that's it's important i think and i i learned a lot doing it um you're basically you're talking about orchestration now or like yeah my literally the surface of a sound world is something that you could fool around with right sure and you you know i can i can go to like a a fetish place with that and really get into it and 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 love it and whatever i small tangential anecdote i was listening to music at a friend's house who's also a pianist he's he's still a pianist so that's what he does with his life we listened to some schubert two different pianists um steyer and um andrea steyer and malcolm bilson and we were just comparing their interpretations and i was like at the beginning like he started playing this and i don't really listen to piano music anymore and like my immediate reaction was like oh this is just boring it's really boring. <laughs> it's piano music. Come on, you know. And then I like shut that off, and I got into it, and I listened to it, and I right. And then sure, of course, I could get back into that and, and be like, okay, I'm gonna really perv out and like yeah. listen to all the. How does he sculpt the end of that phrase, and what does he do here, and whatever. It's such a way that like almost no one on the planet listens, really, you know. And just because we can, because we have this weird training, you gotta just remember like that is not how most people are hearing it, you know. And they're hearing it through like wads and wads of, of thick gauze. You're not going to really communicate those things, those specialist concerns to non-specialists. I don't know. I, I can do both. But like the, the one I'm mostly at right now is like that that was a kind of a, you know, piano music is sort of a, a boring thing. Yeah, right stop now. sounding like a piano all the time, you stupid piano. Like that, that type of, oh, my God, really? Another piano note from this piano? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well said. Give me yeah. something cool. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Sorry, I'm, I'm kind of dancing around a long answer to this. What can I do in a concert that I think is still interesting? I think I can do failures in a way that are poignant and kind of like immediately poignant 
and moments that just make me happy that I'm in the room. Like that kind of do a thing that usually doesn't happen in a concert hall. Doesn't that piss off performers a little bit though? Yeah. They're like, you're going to make us look bad. And you're like, that's the point. Everybody's going to see why you have to look bad in this certain situation. And they're like, but we want to look good. Right. Yeah. Right. So they must get, so they get. Yeah. So, okay. So that you come up with friction about with that, but what's the other, I mean, okay, just right. What's so the other thing? What's so the other thing? Um, the other thing is then sort of perceptual based phenomena. Like, so I have this ensemble piece called call that has at its core, this really, really, really slowly moving cluster. That's, it's normally um, natural harmonics in the strings and it's about a minor third and Inside of that minor third, it, there's like different orchestrations of like microtonal orchestration. So there, you know, you'll leave a couple of the quarter to- tones within that range out and those will shift and you'll sort of shift it around through different instruments. And so that over the course of 23 minutes is rising at a rate of a quarter tone a minute. So slow that you basically don't hear the movement at all, right? So what I'm going for there and the, the reason I, I'm happy with that as a concert piece is it does allow for like an individualized listening experience in that people will notice at different moments or maybe not at all that this thing that they thought was static actually is moving. So I'm going, I'm going for this like realization, like I thought that I was still at point A, but suddenly I'm at point B and I don't remember traveling. Everybody right? has their own climax basically, right? Yeah. yeah like it's not, it's not like a traditional piece where it's like, ba, ba, da, da, ba, ba. <laughs> and like right there on that downbeat, everybody goes, aha, that was the chord that he was going for. But now that you're, you're doing this gradual thing, then everybody has this, everybody at a different pace is going, wait a minute. Right. Is this thing moving? Right. Right. And then that might happen for for the first three minutes for one audience member, for the next audience member might happen for, depending on how long the piece is, you know, at the last second, you know, or exactly. even maybe when it stops and he thinks about it, he goes, well, was that, was that moving? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's allowing for that sort of like hybridized experience among the audience that I think is... It also doing the collectivity thing that I'm interested in rather than being like, I'm a smart genius and I'm going to show you this really smart genius thing i just did like yeah bam, that's, yeah, that's the that's the kind of fetishism i was talking about with myself where i was like i should probably get away from that but right. uh, yeah yeah <laughs> anyway yeah then no, that's true actually i really like that solution of like structuring a piece in a way where everybody kind of comes to a realization about what it is at a different level but at the same time then it has to be very homogenous doesn't it for that type like then you can't have sections because then everybody at the same time is going to have that synchronized realization ah new section he stopped Mm. doing that you know right right so the amount of actually like material that you can have and still have that work is limited you can really only have i don't know one thing maybe i don't know there's a lot going on in that piece though and maybe maybe so much that it actually gets in the way of this thing that i'm talking about because i talked with people about it afterwards and most people didn't hear that at all they were like oh you mean the string chord that was exactly the same every single time i was like no it actually goes up over an octave but that didn't come across at all and like it really everyone missed it um so maybe for the reason you're talking about actually too much other yeah, stuff. Yeah, so all, happening. all of a sudden, their point of aha, this is actually different was Just, when you told them, which is actually completely synchronized, like a classical music piece. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. But the, I mean, the, That's the climax of the piece for them is when it's over and you told them that it was great. Right? <laughs> exactly. Anyway, so, okay, so you're saying that this has a lot of stuff in it still that maybe to the point where it gets in the way. Maybe. Right? There's a lot of little, little details. Like, but, you know. 
other instruments will sort of hang on to these chords, um, like elements of these chords. And like the, the chord is basically, you know, like long note, pause, long note, pause, long note, pause. That's how it's articulated. And um, so it's this perforated kind of texture and the gaps are filled with a, with a lot of other really, really quiet things that maybe weren't quiet enough. I don't know. How are you improving this? Have you written a piece since? What's your, what's your Mebos plan? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. So you did that. It's like, technically it sounded like an executable idea to work in the concert hall for, to have to kind of mimic kind of a um, sound installation experience. It failed for a certain amount of reasons. You seem to be aware of those. What are you doing now to... I don't really know. I mean, I'm just, so I'm just kind of starting this piece for them. And one thing I've asked them to do is to, I don't know if they're going to do this, is to send me solo performances of each of them, which I'm guessing has probably been a while for most of them. I know Mariel does, uh, the cellist does like solo performance stuff. I kind of want old solo performances, like student recitals. I... I'm toying with the idea of staging their my, my interpretations of their personal histories. And like, if I hear, I mean, you know, what I would love to hear actually is um, like bad solo performances of each member of them from a long time ago and kind of have that be, be something that personalizes the piece for them. So we're not just hearing like a string quartet, but we're actually hearing these four musicians play a piece like written for them. So I'm going with this, you know, writing for them thing and seeing if I can actually make that work. Also not a, not a new idea. Tons of people do this, but I, I wonder how well anyone has ever really done that. But do you think they can be done well to the point where I understand as someone as someone sitting down and listening to it, I understand that that, that was personal. Yeah, that that was the methodology that you chose. I don't know. I mean, I guess here's here's maybe an interesting or a reason why I'm interested in this. I just found out about this band, The National, and I went to. Do you know them? No. They are. That's so comforting because uh, a friend of mine works at a bar and she was like, hey, I, I can get like you in to the guest list for some band, some indie band. You don't like indie stuff, right? They're called The National. And I was like, I don't know. I'll ask around. So I come home and I ask my roommate. I was like, do you know this band, The National? And she was like, get on the phone and get us on that guest list. And like, apparently they're, they're a huge deal. So I go to this concert and I hear them and they were, they were amazing. They blew my mind. They're, I've been listening to them a lot. And they are composed of two different pairs of brothers. One of which one of the pairs is a twin, like they're they're like actual identical twins, and I knew that going into it, and so and you see it, they actually really play it up, like they because the twins like really look the same, but the brothers also are clearly stylized to look related, and so you have this like personal history that is being foregrounded in their performance, or at least middle grounded. I don't know. It's there and it's part of their image. And like, that's one of the, that's something every fan will know about them, right? Is that they have this like familial link happening. And I was like, why is that interesting? Like, why do we care if they're genetically related? Like, what is the point? And I think there's just a poignancy there that we can, I don't know, lots of people have siblings or everyone has some sort of family. And like knowing that this great band that I really love is up there and like, they're not only endorsing artistic expression but there's somehow like there's something home about them there's something home and family about them on this stage like i think that's moving in a way so that's an example for me of like personal history being fertile ground for poignancy so that's one idea with mevos is like how can i do that you know i don't know any of them personally but i think that's what people are going for when they write for specific 
players and write to their strengths and weaknesses. And I mean, I, what I'm saying is basic. I want, I want to write to their weaknesses. And I, I'm a big fan of exposing performer vulnerability. Um, I think that can be a super empowering thing. So I'm going to try that out a bit. And if that doesn't work, you know, I'll just, just write some concert piece. I don't know. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> this, this entire giant manifesto of like, of how people are relatable and like, you know, if it works, I'll just fucking write. I don't know. <laughs> Some scratch tones and a hiss there, and you know, and stuff. No, I mean, people no, people will nod their heads and say yes, that was music, <laughs> and they'll say congratulations after the concert, and that'll be it. <laughs> I mean, you know, if we're gonna get real cynical about it, I think that's usually what happens. And I mean, no composer goes into it thinking that that's what they're doing, but I think that's the result that is. I mean, you wouldn't be motivated to write the out, piece you know? if that was in your head, right? right? You have to say to yourself, "This is gonna be amazing." It's gonna be amazing. Yeah. I know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, so. This is so that's an example of you trying to kind of bring this installation world to I do have a better answer, but I'll let you ask your other question. Well give me the better give me the better answer first. Because that to me is a very very loaded and something that I'm I'm just not convinced actually that is actually technically achievable. Me neither. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Me and neither. I think what that indie band, again, I haven't seen them, but that's more of a marketability thing, you know? Of course. Like, and it also has to do with kind of very superficial things you see on the stage, like, oh, they look the same. Right. And also costume. I mean, maybe you can make the string quartet dress up like the Partridge family or something like that. <laughs> the Von you know? Traps. Yeah, the Von Traps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know if I could be convinced by that if i saw that on stage yeah me yeah, neither yeah, yeah. me neither okay, I mean, so, so what's the what's the better solution i mean okay so i've taken a bit of a break actually i haven't written for about two months because i had a really heavy period of writing 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 and not thinking and so now i've been thinking and not writing and um i am sure that i am at a breaking point in a, a, a um, like a turning point I know that whatever comes out in this, in the, for this string quartet is going to be unlike anything else that I've written. And I just don't quite know how yet. I can say I'm interested in doing stuff on stage that I haven't seen done before. And I think that's less to do with like weird sounds than it is to do with queering that the moment of live performance, bringing a, like shedding a light on what is actually happening in this space right now together in a way that we normally don't do. So that's a kind of vague thing because I haven't figured out how exactly that's going to come across, but I know that that is the, that's the feeling that's important to me is yeah. Kind of bursting outside of our expectations of like what is supposed to happen in a live concert and the musique concrète instrumental thing that Lachenmann has kind of pioneered and, and everyone's super interested in now used to be that. Actually, Spalinger in Freiburg would talk about, you know, things like his first, like Lachenmann's first string quartet and how people, you know, got up out of their seats and slammed the fucking doors when they went out of the concert. It was in your face and it was provocative and it really ruffled people's feathers. And now that it doesn't do that really at all anymore. I'm sure you can find an audience where you can play it for them and get that reaction. But yeah, grandmas um, who like visit during Christmas and you sit them down and you play that and they're like, what is this? You right. Know? But the, I mean, but not people who are actually up for a new experience. Is that what motivates you, though? You you look at a social situation and it that's where it starts out. Here's the social situation. Yeah. This is why I don't like it. Let me try and figure out a way to make something that either highlights that, why I don't like it, like staging failure, right. or breaking it down in a way where people are put in a position where 
something not only sonically but socially happens within the concert hall. That's where that's where you start out, right? right. That's where you go. Okay, I've gotten worked up about that. Now I'm going to do something. Like it's always a social situation that you're like, I need to find a way to mix this up. Yeah, 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 yeah definitely. And it, I mean, the the live performance angle is really the thing that's in the forefront of my mind when I'm writing. And it's it's not how my decisions on the micro level are sort of affecting the macro level over the the course of the piece. It's not in terms of like constructing a perfect score in in a way that will be like, I don't know. I'm kind of always thinking about that live performance. But simple example, I have this voice trio that I ask to be performed with the performer's backs to the audience. Super simple thing to do, but actually totally jarring, like still to be encountered with, with that. Never, you know, everyone kind of has to work out why that just happened or why that is happening now for this 12 minute piece and what that's actually serving. And I think it's really not clear to people. Like they want it explained. They're like, why did you do that? It's such a simple thing, like just facing it, that that's one convention that we expected of a concert hall that we don't really think about is like the performers face the audience. But are you, you breaking a convention just to break a convention or, no. or but you obviously have to have a second thought. Okay, there's got to also be a reason why I'm doing this. Right. You know, other than it's normally done the other way. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. And I, I mean, otherwise, it would just sort of be like an empty, um, not even shock. That's not the right word, but just like provoking for for no reason. Um, the reason I do it with that piece in uh, in particular is because I want to. I don't want people to focus on the contortions of the face that are necessary to make these sounds. Um, I think that's distracting uh, because we are so like ocular centric, we would latch onto that and not listen as carefully. And so that's reason number one. And the second is um, it's actually derived from a, a different piece that had a lot of improvisation in it. That was like a kind of a failed piece, but back in my, my Oberlin days and the performers actually performed in black boxes. So they were shielded entirely from view. And they, they had microphones in their boxes. And the reason there was so that they could feel comfortable inhabiting a really personal space and expose vulnerabilities and, and go to a private space. So it's really about uh, the collision between the private and public spheres. This is why I like masks sort of concretely and, and metaphorically, because they can uh, invite a sort of like exploration and freedom um, that you might not otherwise Feel. So I don't know if that works for all of the performers who actually do this. I would feel more comfortable going to a personal place, knowing that people aren't checking out my face and knowing also the, uh, it's also designed for three men with like as similar of a like vocal timbre as possible so that you kind of can't tell who's making sound right now. So, you know, becoming anonymous in that like super exposed, you know, you're on stage moment. You think there's no way to get performers to feel completely comfortable and free without physically shielding themselves? To really get a player to expose their vulnerabilities, given that that's something that they've been trying to iron out and perform through, you know, like every performer learns how to gloss over mistakes, right? You have to do that, right? So then to do exactly the opposite, which is to say, you know, shine a bright light on your mistakes and like really fail like well, like really be like a virtuoso, a virtuoso failure. I mean, I think that's like by definition, like a queering of virtuosity and like to name a simple example, if uh, that it, that happens in a piano piece of mine, there's a there's a twelve note sort of passage that go that starts at the top of the piano, it goes down, and it comes up to sort of the middle, and it's this disjunct motion thing. And you play it, and then you have a little rest, and then you play it faster, and then a little rest, and faster, and faster, and faster, and faster, until you start making mistakes, and you you really take this the cello rondo beyond the point of control, 
and then well beyond the point of control. So like your mistakes start out as like little, like you hit a C natural instead of a B natural or something. And then you're like actually just hitting clusters instead of single notes because you're moving so fast that you just can't place your hand there. You can't get your finger there in time. So there's a good and a bad way to do that. You can really mess that up. <laughs> you, you can play that in a way that's super boring and like that would have to do with like maybe being too safe or like having... Uh, having that qualitative shift from I'm in control to I'm out of control being yeah, yeah, too yeah. sudden, mm -hmm. right? And so like there is... Like performers are so used to being good that, that they're going to be like, oh, okay, around this time is when I'm going to start to screw up. And right. You, and you're like, wait, that's you're being incredibly cynical right now about my vision of it. Is you have to let it spontaneously blow up if it if if it so happens, and that's what's going to be great about it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and that's that's a, I think a strange space that isn't that isn't something performers are uh, are trained to do or used to doing, and um, some will do it way better than others. Like, well, I mean, like you just you know? said, they're trained to deal with those situations when they arise to actually make it not seem that way. Right. So it's completely counterintuitive to them. I'm right. sure. I like that's good. Okay, so tell me tell me a little bit about. Um, I pronounce. I mispronounce every piece. I love that. Yeah, do it. Oh, really? <laughs> Amal. Other way, alam. Alam. Oh, right. Damn it. Okay, I'm dyslexic. I guess. <laughs> alam is verbally dyslexic. Does that even make sense? No. Um. Yeah. Okay. So this piece it means pain. It is uh, based on a poem written by uh, Zakaria Mohammed, who's a man I, I've never met in person. We had some email contact, and this was for the literature festival in. Berlin in 2011. Uh, it was held at the Akademie der Künste. And basically the project was to do something with poetry. They gave me a, a database full of living poets and said, you know, uh, living or recently dead actually poets and said, you know, here's a bunch of stuff, find something and collaborate with one of these people. And, you know, so I spent, I spent weeks sort of going through listening to this stuff and the entire text of his poem in my English translation of it is my pain is a pitcher on the table. I have no stick to smash it. That's the poem. I loved the simplicity of the language. I loved how concise it was and really how misleadingly naive it is actually, right? My pain is a pitcher on the table, like a pitcher, like a water pitcher, right? This is comparing pain to a really mundane object that's in a super mundane place, right? This is like, my pain is the most ordinary thing imaginable. And it's just this very basic object. And there's nothing I can do about it. And it's right there. And it's going to be right there. I'm going to wake up every day and it's going to be right there. And I loved it. Like I was, I was, and I, and I remain in love with this poem. You know, it's like, what do you do? How do you, how do you make music out of that? Why does this matter? And I'm way more a fan in dealing with other media of letting them each speak for themselves rather than than superimposing them or it's sort of like integrating their like expressive structures some way um so i really i start started off by him reading it it's a recording um that already existed of, of him just reading the poem and then i recorded two other native arabic speakers reading it so we hear him we hear another guy then we hear another guy and then we have the music and that is the piece right and the music is just purely some sort of reflection of what an, an unpacking of my response to that poem, you know, like, why, why do I love this? What do I think this is bringing up? And like, I think there's a lot of violence in that poem. That's really latent. Um, there's no explanation for the pain where it comes from. Why does he want to smash it with a stick? Why does that even make sense that that would be a way to get rid of pain? Like there's, um, there's you a lot. Are, to are you through. reading into it as American? Like, Oh my God, imperialism. And well, he lives in Ramallah. 
So he, I mean, he is, he is in the heart of, you know, of an occupied country right now. And he sort of is, is living in the midst of daily violence. Right. Um, so yeah, I can't separate that from it. I also don't want to like romanticize that or have any sort of insinuation that I can understand his experience. At yeah, all, right? exactly. Right? Yeah. We had really like a lovely email contact and he, he just seems like this dude who he was super generous. He was like, use my poem, do whatever you want with it. Like, I hope it's beautiful. Like, I wish you all the best. You know, he's like just full of like incredible generosity. And like, I've, I read through a bunch of his work and I find it all has this like kind of modest, simple, like not specifically tied to any event or any person or any place or anything. It's, it's really, you know, he's, he's going for the core. He's going for like, what is, what is the core of my understanding of pain through my own personal lens of experience? And can you, through your own personal lens of experience, relate to that in any way, shape or form, you know? And I, and I think, yes, like, I think when we divorce ourselves from our personal history, when you say pain and I say pain, there's some overlap in what we're talking about. ألم ألمي إبريق على طاولة وعصاي ليست معي لأهشمه ألم ألمي إبريق على طاولة وعصاي ليست معي لأهشمه ألم ألمي إبريق على طاولة وعصايا ليست معي لأهشمة
did he hear the recording of the piece? Did you send it to him? I don't know. No, we haven't had contact since. Actually. I wonder. I wonder what he would think about it's like you know, like new music's quasi sound installation interpretations of this incredibly simple poem. I know the guys who I recorded who were strangers, right? I just um, I found out that this guy was a native Arabic speaker, and I was like would you mind reading this for me? And like, here's what I'm going to do with this sound material. And it's going to happen in a concert at the Academy of the Arts. Are you comfortable with that? And like, he, um, this guy was actually Palestinian. And his response was like, he's like, sure, random person, I will do this thing for you. And he said, I hope it helps. I hope what you're doing helps. Now that can be interpreted a number of ways. Like, I, ho- I, I hope this helps the world. He, he meant- or, or <laughs> I'm pretty sure he meant, I hope this helps you out with whatever weird problem you have oh no 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 Uh, he meant specifically like i hope this helps the um the occupation really yeah he meant that yeah 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 who said this to like the guy on the street who just read it yeah he was um actually from um falafel place uh, on lausitzer platz that's where i met him you needed an arabic speaker so you just walked to hit a falafel place (laughs) and walked in (laughs) no my friend my friend actually knows uh some of the guys who works there who are moroccan and she was like they're definitely native speakers. Let's go and see if they're there. And like, they weren't there, but um, this other guy was working and he was willing to do it. So what I can say though, about the, about using these three different speakers that I, that I think was musically really effective was that you could hear so clearly their different intonation and just the, the, the pacing and the words that they would emphasize more and where they would put longer pauses and stuff. Cause they were actually three different voices uh, and I'd say maybe two different generations. There was one young guy, right? And I think it's safe to say that almost no one at the concert understood Arabic, right? Yet they hear this poem in Arabic three times. And I think that was essentially a musical experience. Like, I think that, because it's so short, right? It's it, it takes maybe 11 seconds for them to say it. And then you get the next guy and then the next guy. And you're by then you're already attuned, you're already listening musically and already attuned to like differences within these repetitions, you know? I, I like this idea a lot, lots of music that I admire that deals with text does this, um, of, of just communicating on the level, like almost beneath the text, beneath understanding the grammar of the words that are used and just like going for the pure expressivity of like human language. We kind of know this living yeah. in Germany where it's but like, also, but also in doing that you ruin the, I mean, people can't understand the poem, that whole meaning that you put all that thought into is lost right and it's lost in a way that you're not trying to emphasize like unlike unlike the other failures that you enjoy like emphasizing within players and also the concert hall experience this is one that is like out of your control and maybe not so helpful to what the idea is i don't i wouldn't see it that exclusively actually because i mean you can read in the program notes like what does this mean the okay so there was a translation at some point right 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 in the program note but the thing i think that was able to maybe bridge a gap is that for people who do not speak Arabic, they could hear inside of that at least the beginnings, the onset of like human expression that is very familiar, that is just based on like unappreciating intonation and pacing and things like that, right? Which you wouldn't pick up on if you heard a foreign language just once. But if you have a short snippet three times by three different voices, you start to dig in. There was this beautiful word, um, Hashima, which is the smash word that particularly had like a different kind of weight in each of them the poets he kind of performs it whereas the other guys just sort of read it and he really sort of digs into that word and one of them kind of gives a little little space and the other kind of glides past it i'm I'm just being 
curious because obviously the people who gave you these poems were interested in something political. Were all of the poems of this nature, of a, a very political nature? What you know, was it some white guy who goes, "The flowers are pretty in the hills," and Tons then you're like, okay, "Okay, so Tons it was, of it. It was huge." I mean, uh, yeah, they had you know this this database of poets like it was massive, and it was every you know name and language. There was a poet in there. What made you go for that something so politically loaded? So I first gravitated to towards his stuff. I mean, obviously, you have to start making decisions somewhere, right? Like, because I mean, there were literally to listen to the whole database would have been probably two solid weeks of sleepless listening, right? So I did choose specifically Arabic poems because I was looking into Arabic poems and Chinese poems, and then some German stuff, and then Danish stuff. I don't remember why I was in in those. I actually wanted languages that were fairly unfamiliar here, so because I was interested in this idea of you know exposing that musicality in a context where we don't understand the grammar and and all of that. So that's where I started, and I actually I wanted to work with um, this Icelandic poet that, that has worked with Björk before. And I was really into this poem of his, something about lemons. I forget what it was called. Beautiful poem. I initially picked him. And then I was told he was taken, actually, for the same concert. Someone else had already sort of uh, yoinked him. So then I then I went back to the drawing board. And then I came and I was like, okay, I'll, I'll check out this uh, these Arabic poems. Yeah. And I gravitated towards it. I'm sort of Arab-Israeli conflict is something that is a personal interest of mine. Um, I've, I've done a lot of reading on it. I think it's a pretty key thing for Americans specifically because so much of because the United States is so invested in that conflict to have a deep understanding of and sort of come to our own terms with. So yeah, there's a personal like political angle where I I feel really comfortable having that be something that I I play my small part in like putting forth in discourse if you can even Do call you see it yourself that. as an act and like is this some form of activism then? Maybe. I don't want that to eclipse the quality of what you're doing. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you don't, yeah. it's it's not like, do I think that this conflict is something where we have a healthy discourse? Like, no. Do I think it's worth pointing out that we do not have a healthy discourse about it? Like, totally. And that's something that I, I've, I've done with, or tried to do a little bit with this piece. And then also my quartet for Dono Eschingen, which uh, was written for an Israeli-based group. So I traveled to Israel for the first time. Unfortunately, it was just a five-day trip, and I was like at a kibbutz the whole time. <laughs> so I saw nothing really of the of the country. I saw the airport and then some taxi cabs. Why did you do the whole kibbutz thing? That was uh, that's how the the ensemble organized things. That's where we were rehearsing. They had a cooperation with and um, Hashofet, which is the name of the kibbutz, and that you know that was just their partnership out there. So it was beautiful. Like it was, it was a lovely experience. Yeah. So what's your what's your Oh God, I don't even know if I want to go into this, but like you have a, you said you have a very concrete or you have a, a about that. How was that opinion? I'm going to try and keep it related to the piece. Sure. How was, how was that opinion related to your approach to this piece, to the text, to how you want people to take it in and understand it? Is it important for you to have a clear political message for something that is as open as a sound installation on no, I mean with with that one specific. I think I, I think my piece for Dono Eschingen uh, Don was more explicitly provocative. I mean, in that it was dedicated to Günther Grass. Um, okay, yeah. right. So that is a that's a statement that is pretty clear, especially in Germany. So with Alam, it was not as overt as that, um, but I think there was a a just a weight, a political weight to. A, having a poem in Arabic, period, right? I mean, 
getting beyond um, just the, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict itself and looking, say, US, U.S. treatment of um, of Muslims and native Arab speakers kind of in general and sort of then, I, I would say, like an unequivocally elevated level of acceptable racism in current discourse. Like having a poem then in Arabic that's actually saying, you know what, I, I what is it? I, what is it actually saying? I don't know if it's saying anything more than like, here is a poem in Arabic, and <laughs> like, um, you you almost can't do that without it already being political, right? Like just just That's having I mean. Arabic yeah, yeah, there yeah, is yeah. like already you don't even need to touch it anymore. Like you've already made a statement, right? Uh, or you've you've already at least hit uh, a nerve. Like, what do you want to achieve then? You know what I mean? Because then there's, I think, within your approach there is actually a limited level of specific kind of views that you that you can have an approach to where if you just sit down and you're having like a nuanced conversation with somebody then you can really talk about specifics and go back and forth right about a complicated issue about what your specific opinion is but if in a piece of music is that really possible no yeah yeah, yeah. of course not of course yeah. not um and i right this is why i think you know the political import in alam is really limited just to you know including the work of a palestinian in this sort of context and that's kind of it it doesn't really say anything beyond that other than like it's one instance of inclusivity so it's it's one instance of saying like in this sphere of you know new music concert at the academy of the arts like that you know he was the only palestinian poet represented i'll say it that way right and so like the decision to be someone who does that is you know i'm not like trying to pat myself on on the back here or anything it's it's like even out you know if someone else had done it it's like okay that matters because it is one moment where this is included rather than excluded i think people read into it more you know people are going to sit down and try and understand it and the actual notion of oh it's just simply there and that is the enough of a message is not like people are going to actually feel obligated to interpret it way way beyond that just because um just because you did it well just just because it's a palestinian poet all right yeah or just because it's a politically loaded subject in language for people to sit down and experience a piece of art with that one seems loaded it does why is that because it is in in general mixing those two mediums has a very strong political implication what, what do you mean mixing poetry and music no 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 mixing arabic poetry and western music Sure. I also think of a lot of uh, initiatives that like new music institutions go for now. And a lot of it is that political mixing. Oh, let's send somebody to Istanbul and, you know, for uh, a while and then we'll have an East meets West thing. And then sure. everybody reads into it as, oh, it's an East meets West approach. Right. It's loaded in that way because then they're like, OK, where are we going with this like mixture now? Yeah. I mean, I, th I think it's so tempting for all of this to be. Um, to, to, to just be put into boxes that are overly simple, right? I respond to the work because I think it's beautiful work, right? Like I, I think this particular poet is, I think he's a masterful poet. And on a level, that's where it ends, right? In an ideal world, that's where it ends. Well, in, you know, <laughs> if, if we could sort of parse it, you know, um, if we use our brains to consider things separately, like for a moment, there is this element where it's just about like a beautiful poem. And then there's this element where it's like some middle class white dude who now like has the privilege of like living in Germany as an expat with some weird art life, like finds this Palestinian artist to collaborate with at a 
like the Academy of Arts in Berlin, like, yeah, like, is that loaded? And like, sure, <laughs> like, there's a ton uh, that we could kind of pull apart there. And so it's a question of how much weight you want to give those as a composer, eh? and also how much weight people are going to come into it with just from the get go. You know, you have to obviously you have to engage with that as well. I mean, the latter isn't really my responsibility. Like I don't, you know, I, I can't control what people are going to assume when they come into uh, a concert. I can think about it and think about how I'm going to engage with it. But if if I use another example here, that's now getting getting away from this specific in terms of being staging sexuality or like having the fact that I'm a homosexual like be obvious or relevant in a piece has a similar set of um, um, of considerations in it, right? Like I, I have this piece looking for a man to love and fuck and the title is sort of deliberately provocative. It's a quote, uh, incidentally, from a uh, from someone on a gay dating website's uh, internet profile that was like his headline, like I'm looking for a man to love and fuck, which struck me again as like super honest and moving and disarming and it was like embodying a, a conflict that's that's really familiar to me but this has like video material in it that's explicitly homosexual and there's a way that you can't just tell a gay love story you can't just have like a piece have gay themes in it without be it being interpreted as a gay piece right like that gayness is foregrounded I immediately think, i think that's right? where i'm going at yeah okay continue yeah yeah, yeah. right and so like what do you do with that? It's like, well, you know what? I I actually have no latitude here because that's where we're at, guys. So like I can't actually do, you know, no one says like, do you, you can't, see that? You, you can't change the social context or what's going on in people's minds. But that doesn't mean you don't have the responsibility to go there if you feel a connection towards it. Right. And my and, you know, no one ever says that's um, frustrating, isn't it? That oh, my it's God. Like, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, no yeah. one. No one ever says, did you see that great stri- movie about straight love? You know, no one ever says that because that's the assumption like that is that is sort of the definition of heteronormativity of the current sort of sexual hegemony. So my response to it is basically because I have no choice anyway, because even if I subtly layer it as subtly as I possibly can, it's still just going to be like gay, 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 gay yeah, is the yeah. first thing. Right. Um, so then I do sort of deliberately provocative and and kind of like tap into a gay anger thing where it's like. I am going to throw this in your face with the title in a sense, sort of playing into sort of the worst possible expectations of what a faggot might do. Right. And then you just do that. That has sort of an expressivity that I I can really stand behind as an artist. Now, if we extrapolate and look at like, okay, what do we do with something like this in a, in a really sensitive political situation? And it's like, well, the moment anyone reads Palestinian there, then they're going to see anti-Semitic. They're going to see, pushing buttons somehow in a in a way that is like is that really even ethical to do that like uh it's just it's like immediately like kind of a i don't want to say like a third rail but it it, it eclipses kind of whatever you're going and for, people you know? can also read into it the wrong way as in a, a certain type of cynicism that the composer might have like, sure this is a hot topic now this is how i get attention i'm going to go there i'm far from accusing you of that, but I'm just saying that's also a risk that you have when you go towards these things. Right. And also kind of the idea that the more I think about this, the more I actually think that it is a positive thing that this happens, but you are really dating the pieces. If there's an in-your-face piece about homosexuality or an in-your-face piece about a certain moment, people are going to connect it, be able to connect it to a time when that was a big deal. 
because they are seeing that anger, they're going to be like, oh, that's so 2011. Yeah. Right. And it might be the same in a certain sense for this piece that you took from a Palestinian poet. I think probably not in that case, just because the only thing that's really in there is the poem itself. Right? Yeah, it's, it's like, here's a, here's a poem. And it's, I don't know. I don't see that as such a provocation. I mean, other than just the, the, the scarcity of maybe on that concert of, of the Arabic language, like, yeah, it definitely stuck out. I don't know. I think with that one, it doesn't really put it so much in the box. The, but they might see the mixture of it. They're like, Oh, that, I think that's also kind of what I'm getting at. They, they'll see the mixture of a composer such as yourself using that type of material. And they'll be like, of course that's so, 2013 to mix those two things right i don't know how much i worry about that i think <laughs> actually, i think actually you know? the, the more the more i think about it the more i think it's important is to not worry about it that's right. what i mean by some people might think that is a negative connotation that it's dated somehow right but actually i don't i, I don't believe that anymore and i think just go for what you think is there you know? yeah totally well i think it's a good place to leave this cool okay great yeah thank you for doing this this is amazing thank you so much